They say poker is a hard way to make an easy living. This is the podcast about people that make poker work for them. This is Mid-Stakes Living. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Mid-Stakes Living, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com. Uh, we are here uh, for our very last episode of the year. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Killing Bird. I'm joined, as always, by Matt Hunt. How are you today, sir? Very well, Derek. Very well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I think we're both getting over colds, so we're just kind of happy to be here. This is the sick edition, and not sick in a poker way, just sick in a general health way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, so forgive either of us if we sound a little strange. We're both getting over the the, the various colds. So, uh, but that's uh, neither here nor there. We're very happy today to be joined um, by by well, an actual sick in the poker way uh, guy. Currently ranked in the top five, I believe, worldwide on, on P5s and number one in the UK, if I have that correct. His name's Patrick Leonard. You may know him online as Paz1161. How are you today, Patrick? Good, thanks. I've actually been getting over a cold as well, so I guess that's that's us. <laughs> that's what this I hope, yeah. is like. I hope germs can't spread over Skype. <laughs> don't think so, no. It's actually, it's weird because I've just come back from Prague and everyone's everyone in Prague's ill because like, once you get to December, everyone starts getting ill with the weather, so... Yeah. In Prague, everyone's passing the, passing the chips around and stuff, and oh, it can't God, be... Okay. It must spread across the poker world like wildfire whenever someone gets sick. I think so, yeah. I was just thinking, uh, I actually had a, um, a self thing on the last day of my trip. I, I told myself I wasn't going to touch my chips for the whole for the whole day, and huh. uh, it, it took a lot of like mental strength to like not riffle my chips, because obviously it's quite boring live poker sometimes, so just not riffling your chips is really difficult, but I think I, think I managed like two hours or just before the first break, and then wow, I told yeah, I told the table I wasn't going to riffle my chips, and then some guy caught me doing it, and he... Oh, uh, he... uh, yeah. You should have prop bet somebody. I saw, like, a Poker After Dark once where Ivy and Durr had this prop bet about Durr not shuffling his chips, and I think he lost after about 16 minutes or something. Yeah, it's <laughs> super, it's, it's really difficult, yeah. It's like <laughs> it's like the noise of the chips riffling. Like, when you go into the Rio, you can just hear the chips riffling, and you just, <laughs> like... It just makes you do it yourself. It's uh, but yeah. Anyway, it's good. It's good to be here. Anyway, but uh, like I said before we came on the call, I've uh, listened to a few of the podcasts before. I think I listened to uh, Tom Hall's last week or the week before, and that was that was nice to listen to, and uh, a few others. So yeah, it's uh, yeah. It's it's always so, good to have yeah. a have a listener on here. Right? I think um, <laughs> what, what I want to do is I think uh, it'd be nice if I introduced the listeners to you by I, I found a thread uh, from Two Plus Two where you were forgive me for this, but you were selling some action to uh, some of the um, empty, live entities you're playing in England recently, and uh, okay. it has the, sick, the sickest list of your results that I want to read <laughs> because it, it's just uh, like it's disgusting in, in how how many tournaments you've won this year. So the list of results is as follows: so This was at this point you were number one on pocket fives. You had around 500k in profit on the year, which is pretty good enough. But uh, it says you won the bigger 55 for 40k, the third in the big 109, and then won the big 162 for 15k in back-to-back sessions. Uh, you had 20, 23 other five-figure scores this year, including multiple wins in the 326 max and the 109 rebuy, as well as, this is the this is the good part, chopping the Sunday warm-up as significant chip leader for 92K, ninth in the biggest ever Sunday million for 110K, first in the Sunday bigger 162 for 50K, first in the Sunday bigger 109 twice for 45K and 50K, 21st in the scoop 10K main event for 35K, Scoop 200 cubed final table, Sunday T-Rex, first, first, second, and third. Third in the bigger 55 for 20K, first in the 200R for 19K, 
third in the Sunday FTP major for 20K, and first in the Monday night on Stars 100 rebuy. And that, that to me, is, like, completely absurd for how good you've played this year. So congrats on all of that, first of all. Um, Thanks. And I, uh, I think it's um, – I'm obviously not going to be like, so, how, do you, how did you do it? Um, <laughs> I, I would say, you know, how, how do you feel about um, the year that you've had? Because I know you came over from Cash Games, and you pretty much pretty recently made the transition to MTPs. Is that right? Yeah, well, I don't think – I don't think um... – I've ever played like two MTT sessions in a week before March. I may have done like very rarely, but basically I was a cash game player who would play on Sundays. But even when I was playing on Sundays, I wasn't really like registering like 50, 60 tournaments. I would register like, you, you know, like the Sunday million, the Sunday warm up, like most kind of cash game players do with like uh-huh. the, the dream of trying to just like make a year's salary or something in the tournament. But I've, I always kind of had like a pessimistic approach towards tournaments. They were always like, pretty dumb uh to me like um obviously the variance is really big and uh i think a lot of cash game players have a view of like uh, mtt players are pretty poor in comparison to themselves um so i wasn't really a big fan of tournaments i guess um i think a lot of players prior, tournaments either yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 and over like the next last eight months or whatever i, I kind of fell in love with tournaments kind of like uh-huh. The whole transitioning through different blind levels and in cash games, you basically just you, you're always playing like around about 100 big blinds deep. Of course, you get some uh-huh. short stacks and stuff, but basically you're playing the same ranges from the same positions, basically no matter what. You can you don't follow a chart because it's it's obviously quite complex and there's like very very good players, but I would basically always free bet the same hands from the same positions, and uh, it's often about balance. Like you need to have certain hands in your range, etc. With right. tournament, uh, but when I was a cash game player, I actually played very exploitatively. So I was doing things a little bit different to how other cash game players were, and they would exploit me because I was very unbalanced. But I would exploit them in the same way and stuff. Um, right. So when I when I came over to tournaments, it was kind of like a a breath of fresh air that I could get away with doing all of these like very kind of fancy play syndrome uh, moves, and I, I'm known to to often do some very uh, adventurous and overly too ambitious kind of lines taken like. Uh, very creative bluff lines, which are probably borderline bad. Um, and yeah, so it, it, I kind of enjoyed playing poker again for like eight months or so, because for the first three months of the year, I was going for Supernova Elite, so I was basically playing eight tables of Zoom, which is which is quite difficult to play eight tables of Zoom. It's like, I don't know, it's probably like, uh, it's like playing like 30 tables or something, I guess. So um, yeah. what you have that? to make... 2K hands an hour or something? I read yeah, that. I was playing around about 2,000 hands an hour, and I basically couldn't make a lot of mistakes because... If you're going for Supernova Elite and if you fall into like a C game regularly, then you're just going to lose a lot of money in the year. There's yeah. an English guy who I'm not going to name because he's a friend of mine, but I think he'd lost something like $200,000 um, by trying to go for Supernova Elite at 200 now. And I was playing like 500 and 1,000. So if I let myself get lazy or tilted or something, then I would just literally lose hundreds of thousands because um, the, the other players you're playing against are good regulars. There's not many fish and stuff. So for the first three months of the year, I was basically playing very error-free, kind of um, very very robotic, I guess, um, and just playing eight hours a day eight, and playing these eight tables of Zoom. Yeah. So then when March came around and I started flicking in these tournaments, uh, it was actually lucky because um, back-to-back weekends I had 100k scores, like it was a warm-up and then the million. So having those like scores allowed me to kind of branch out into tournaments and it didn't matter if I lost a little bit or when Scoop came around, it didn't matter so much if I lost 50k where... Otherwise, I would never really be able to afford or it's quite hard if you're playing cash games and 
winning like five hundred or a thousand dollars in a day is like considered a good day. So you can't mm-hmm. really go into scoop and then lose like fifty or sixty k. But because I had like a good first month or so in tournaments, and I ran obviously like way way over EV, mm-hmm. um, it allowed me to go into scoop, which is like a month afterwards. It's like Aprilish time. Uh, I think it starts in April. Uh, or maybe May, I'm not sure. But it, it allowed me to go in and play some higher buy-ins and to play against better players and stuff like uh-huh. that. Um, yeah, so, so yeah. I guess you kind of had like a a pretty rapid introduction to high-stakes MTTs then, I guess, if you went straight into Scoop and were playing a lot of the... How high are you playing in Scoop? Were you playing like all the 10Ks and stuff? Well, I played... I I, played, I finished like 20th in the 10K main event. Uh, oh, of course, yeah, I see on the list now, yeah. I played like... Um, I can't remember exactly what I played. I think I played like some 2Ks and some 1Ks, but at the time, at the time playing 1Ks was still felt pretty big to me and like it was a, a big shot and stuff like, not a shot yeah. uh, bankroll-wise, but it just felt at the time, like if I was registered in a 2K, it was like, oh wow, this is like a really big event. And of course I still feel like that now, but mm-hmm. as the year has gone on and I've played like EPTs and stuff, because I wasn't playing like live tournaments regularly and uh, right. when you when you play like a 5K um, EPT, which is like, I don't know, $7K or something, it's a little bit easier to then go and play like 1Ks and 2Ks online because you've had kind of the mental, um, the mental idea of losing a lot of money in a tournament. And you, right. you can get you can get over it kind of thing a lot a lot quicker. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. e- even so, like playing this high stakes, I've always kind of stayed quite grounded. Like in my sessions every day, I still play like the eight cube, the eleven cube, the the mm-hmm. big twenty two, the big eleven. Like I'm still playing the small binds too, and. Uh, yeah. I'm doing. I'm trying to like work very hard um, from Monday to Friday, playing like a lot of smaller tournaments, getting like regularly going deep in some. Like if I play all these tournaments, I'm going to go deep in something. So I get some experience for playing deeper, like last two tables, and I can study. I, I'm very big into studying, so I can study like some ICM spots from the last two tables. And then my whole week basically now revolves around Sunday. Like I won't go out on Saturday night, so I'm like well rested for Sundays, and like I basically just give everything on a Sunday, like. Uh, most of those scores you read out um, at the start of the interview, where they they're all coming on Sundays. Um, yeah, it certainly seems like it. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people think that um, cash game players have an advantage over MTT players because of the skill advantage. But the main reason why I think I have, um, I don't want to say I have a big edge or anything, but one of the main reasons why that I have, obviously you do based on those results. <laughs> I don't think it's stress to say that to be honest. Yeah, but one of the main reasons why I think I do well is because. Um, I, Previously, I was playing these eight-hour sessions of cash games, so like my mind wasn't make I couldn't make mistakes in hour seven or hour eight. Yeah. In to- so in tournaments, by the time it gets to like midnight on a Sunday or like early in Monday morning, I'm still pretty focused and I'm not making many mistakes. But you get some MTT guys who used to play five days a week and now they just play on a Sunday. And yeah. after they've been grinding for like seven or eight hours, it's pretty tough because if you're not if your mind and your body isn't really prepared for something, then it's hard to like still play your a-, a game like 12 hours later so these guys who come from america to mexico on a sunday and play they'll they'll probably play very similar to how i do between like 2 p.m till midnight but when it gets to monday morning um they're starting to make more mistakes they're maybe tilted because they're not used to like busting 20 tournaments in a day or 50 tournaments in a day but for me it's kind of like a routine and i've kind of like scheduled my mind in the week from monday to friday to prepare for this sunday because i feel like MTT guys basically make their monies on Sundays, but it's mm-hmm. not just about playing on Sunday. It's about like preparing in the week, like studying hard on Thursday and Friday from the tournaments you played Monday to Wednesday and preparing for the Sunday. I don't really think people really take it that serious, and maybe I take it a little bit too serious, but um, it's just a, it's just the way that I've kind of approached it because in cash games, it's all about studying a lot. If you don't study, you'll kind of fall behind the curve. So I've yeah. kind of taken the similar approach in MTTs that... Um, 
I'm learning from playing kind of thing, learning from mistakes. So like, obviously I'm very, very inexperienced in MTTs compared to lots of guys. So I kind of will get into spots every day where I don't know what to do. And I'm like, oh, wow, I'm completely lost here. But um, I try to look at all of these spots after sessions or speak to friends about them. And then hopefully by Sunday every week, I've kind of learned a few things in the week. And then I get into those spots on Sundays and being able to make those decisions that you couldn't make on Tuesday on a Sunday is quite satisfying because you think, OK, I've studied this spot. I know exactly how my range should be and stuff like this. So um, yeah, I, think, I think that's really valuable. I think um, it's certainly like one of the things that I think is easiest to if you have a sort of sporadic motivation for, for poker, which I think a lot of guys out there who are playing part-time, um, I mean, I, I play full-time and I still go through it. Like, uh, you have periods where you're really into, you're really focused and you really, all you want to do is play poker and then you have periods where, like, you just get burned out and mm-hmm. you, um, you don't want to play anymore. And I think the, what it seems to, what seems to be in common with um, most of the guys who are successful in MTTs for the, in the long term is that they, they don't necessarily, they kind of avoid those peaks and troughs of motivation by having a consistent pattern that they follow of, of studying and playing and consistently improving. And, and I think a lot of the, you know, you'll notice people having big downswings and blaming them on variance, which is certainly some, something I did last year. Um, but, um, but not necessarily, you know, developing their game to the point where they've actually been able to improve their ROI and, and overcome that downswing as a result of just increasing that ROI and not leaving things up to variance, you know. So um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure I'm sure that that mentality that you have of continued improvement is is probably part uh, you know responsible for a big chunk of the fact that you've been so successful in MTTs already. Yeah, I get I get a lot of inspiration from my friends actually because um, uh, I have like some friends who are like I think are like the best. Everyone thinks that their friends are the best in MTT <laughs> in Tom just because you talk with them and they tell you good things and stuff. So everyone yeah. thinks their group of friends are, but like mm-hmm. the people who I'm friends with like I mean their results speak for themselves anyway but if I'm not grinding on say a Wednesday and I come online and my friend Europeans like asking me on Skype like where am I or something like this why am I not grinding then if I know he's grinding and I'm just sitting watching a TV show or playing PlayStation or something it kind of makes me like really feel like I'm lazy and why if he's if he's up and grinding then why am I not grinding and he's gone through the same variance I have etc etc so I feel like um People, I feel like my friends and who you surround yourself can inspire you a lot. I know lots of guys who just play on Sundays. Most of their friends, they just play on Sundays too. Like the same guys I see on the tours, like the Swedish guys who play a lot, like Rubinho and people like this. The guys who he surrounds himself with and who he probably inspires and uh, and people who inspire him, they kind of play like a similar routine, a similar schedule. They probably study together and stuff like this. But if all my friends were like, always asking me to go out drinking or they were saying, okay, let's just take this week off. I'll see you next Sunday kind of thing. Or they don't want to study when I ask them or they don't ask me to study. Then I would probably fall into not want into burnouts as well. But I think you, I think you have to be really self-critical in poker. And if other people are doing stuff better than you, especially guys who are as close to you and you feel as competent as, then um, you've really got yourself to blame kind of. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. It's very, it's very easy to blame things on variants. It's very easy to blame things on lots of stuff. But at the end of the day, if you if you play for one year or so and you you study very hard, you grind like four days a week, and uh, you you play as close to your A game as possible, it's pretty hard for the variants to really have that much of an impact on you, especially if you're playing the right tournaments and playing midweek, which is going to be softer and stuff like this. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know game game selection is an important one, and and. I think a lot of guys that have had the biggest downswings, certainly that, you know, I went through big downswings and, and in those instances, it wasn't necessarily that I was playing too high, but it, I was, I was game selecting poorly because I was playing a lot of tournaments that had just really 
really huge fields, and that cannot be variant so much. And I think in yeah. in, the, in a funny way, like a lot of guys who, who play a little bit higher, who maybe don't play so many tables um, and focus more and have a bigger ROI, are actually reducing variance a lot more than some of the guys who play 24 tables of low-stakes stuff because the low-stakes stuff has such big fields that it all kind of cancels itself out anyway, and they're actually not reducing it by that much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I stake, I stake some guys, and uh, I get them to play on sites like on part parties. Like mm-hmm. um, ex, ex, it's really good because they pay like twenty five percent in some tournaments, so it allows them to play tournaments which are like a hundred dollars instead of playing like twenty dollars on stars. Mm-hmm. And the field is smaller, so it's less variance, and also it pays out like twenty twenty five percent. So like yeah. every day, every it's very hard for them to break these tournaments like consistently. Mm-hmm. And because uh, the structures are a little bit better and uh, the players are not as good, they seem to like do really well there. And then um, it allows them to play the bigger tournaments on stars or the bigger field tournaments on stars because they decrease in variance by playing on, say, iPoke or a party or something like this. Yeah. There's a lot of guys who just like stick solely to poker stars and just play these huge fields and then mm-hmm. then wonder why they they can't, why they haven't big downswings. Yeah, exactly. I think the you know the, the smaller, field, smaller fields on other sites can be can be so useful. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny you mentioned party poker because I played, um, I played a, a, like a morning, like a 10 a.m. or 10:30 a.m. UK time. I registered for a, a hundred freeze out on there and, and bought nothing of it a while back. And then uh, when it popped up, I discovered that I don't know what what it is in their software that allows this to happen. But the tournament went ahead with only three runners, so um, so I was in a I was in a three-handed um, hundred-dollar freeze out with obviously everything going to the winner, and mm-hmm. it was. It, like it was absurd to think about that, but then when you actually when you, when I took a step back and, and sort of took myself out of the ridiculousness of playing a three-handed tournament, um, it was actually like, well, these guys are both really bad players because none of the regs obviously bothered to register this, and in the end, it was like a pretty easy two hundred bucks that I picked yeah. up, and uh, and so a lot of those obviously nothing is that extreme, but a lot of those small stakes tournaments, the smaller they are, the less likely it is that regs are going to play them, and. Yeah. And and also like kind of similar to what you said there, but if you play a tournament with like fifty runners, you're gonna be on like the final table more often, you're gonna be on a bubble more often, and you're gonna be yeah. on the final table bubble more often. And like the three most important things in tournaments are like exploiting the bubble, exploiting the final table bubble, and playing the final mm-hmm. table. So if you get more experience from um, from playing these smaller fields of being on finals, then you're gonna just have more experience to because if say you're playing against a guy in poker stars in the Sunday Million or something like this, he's gonna have like very few final tables in the year if you only play on poker stars. But if you're playing on all these smaller tables as well, and you're you're more used to playing like four handed and five handed around the bubble and stuff like this, then you're yeah. gonna pick. If you study these tournaments like afterwards, then you're gonna pick up on things, and you, you're gonna be looking at spots that he's just not gonna be used to because his brain's just like not been in these spots previously, do you, do you know what I mean? So Yeah, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. I think picking up on those small edges by being able to just put yourself in, in um I think uh we had Jamie Wilby on the on the podcast a while back and he talked about uh the concept of getting getting in a certain number of reps of different situations in MTT. Yeah. And that I think is a good way of putting it because in cash games like you said you're playing the same hands, the same ranges very often, but in tournaments it's difficult to get in enough reps about uh, of certain situations to continue improving because you like you say you only make so many final tables you only make so many final table bubbles in a yeah. year um, and if you're playing huge scale tournaments then the number of those is going to be so so few that when you actually get to that point you're you're going to be a lot more unfamiliar with the situations you're not going to be sure of what adaptations you should be making and and all of these different things are going to come into play that you haven't had practical experience with yet so 
Um, I think a lot of the guys that are out there playing, um, you know, I, I know guys who play pretty much exclusively turbos and things like that. And, and that sort of stuff, um, you know, if you're not playing like huge volume, if you're um, playing a lot of big field, high variance stuff like that, then uh, it makes it really hard to improve beyond a certain point because you just don't get the practical experience, like you say. Yeah, I mean, as far as tables go, I mean, I don't even have them in my fields anymore, so I don't even see them in my lobby, and uh, my, none of my yeah. horses, none of my horses are allowed to play turbos. It's just like if there's a turbo which is which is on, there's going to be a better tournament somewhere else for you to register. And uh-huh. It's like a lot of like again like lazy people, I think, just just like play short sessions with turbos, and it's just the easy way out kind of thing. I think mm-hmm. when you when you start a session, you should be mentally prepared for this like long grind. I'm gonna play MTTs tonight and if you if your mind isn't ready for it then just don't play like don't just don't start but if you're going to play tournaments on a night then I think like locking down into a schedule and uh and playing is is the best and generally playing turbos is not going to be the best idea obviously for some people there may be reasons too but uh, as far as turbos go I mean I will play I mean I went I uh I said this like two weeks ago in my blog, and then the next day I won a hot of fifty-five on Sunday. But I mean, <laughs> so I, I do, I will occasionally flick them in. I mean, it, it depends, but but generally I'm like very much against turbos. So, mm-hmm. um, I th- yeah, it's quite sad that lots of like star. I think the star schedule like later on is like predominantly turbos, like the late night session which starts yeah. at like three AM or something. It's basically all turbos. So like people in Australia and stuff, I guess they're just like. They're just their schedules must be really withered. Like they're just like playing turbos and very small freezouts and stuff. It must be. Is, yeah, I think some some Aussies. Are, I mean, I, I couldn't name you any names, but I think some Australians have started to move to like the maybe some of the Asian time zones, or at least something that's a few hours better um, for them in terms of time zone region. Just because it. Yeah, it, I mean, I, there's been a couple of times where I've been up late for whatever reason and, and finding myself debating whether or not to register stuff really late at night, and and yeah. it just doesn't seem like there's that much worth playing at that point. So. Unless you're willing to, I mean, if you're on this side of the world, like if you're in Europe, you, there's just not really any reason to consider uh, regging stuff in the middle of the night that late. So, um, so I yeah, think like, it's yeah, it's going to be for the Aussies mostly. Two, two. I think the two biggest Australian grinders are like uh, Monster Dong and Andy Hinn, and they both live in Budapest, where I live. So they uh-huh. move here and uh, they go back for Christmas and stuff. But yeah, they they decided to move to Europe for the better time zones and stuff. So yeah, absolutely. So. Uh, that's probably a, little, a good little segue for us then. I mean, you're, so you're living in Hungary right now, is that correct? Yeah, I lived in Spain for five years, and then um, poker was illegal in Spain. So, like, online, oh. it was just .es, and it was a very small player pool. So, And mm-hmm. uh, I moved to um, Seged, which is a uh, small city in... Well, it's like the third biggest city in Hungary, but in comparison to most countries, it's small. Uh, where my, it's where my, where my girlfriend's from. We lived in Spain for, like, five years. And then from there, we um, I moved to Budapest. I went to Vegas for the summer. We moved, like, the month before Vegas, whenever that is, like, May or something. And then um, I went to Vegas and then came back to Budapest. And then I've lived here since, like, last summer. And uh, there's a big community of poker players. There's, like, a lot of Hungarian tournament players as well who do pretty uh-huh. well, like, uh, Burrs and Probers and... Uh, a few other guys. Crown Up guy is, is Hungary, Hungarian, right? Or is he living somewhere else? No, Crown Up guy is um, is German, living in oh, Vienna. Okay. Living in Vienna, Fido. Ah, um, okay. The reason I had it in my head that he was Hungarian. No, no, he's uh, he's he's either German or Austrian, but he lives in uh, Austria, right, okay. in Vienna. There's a bunch like, of moved around for tax reasons or something. I forget. Yeah, there's lots of people. I guess everyone's like living in like four or five places right now. It seems like London has all the Spanish guys. All the Spanish guys live in London. I think there's like 120 Spanish pros living in London, which is really Seriously? a lot. Wow. Yeah, and there's like a really big community of them. There's maybe less, but there's like 
there's like at least like 80 or 90. And uh, whenever you go to live tournaments, these guys are always there together in big crowds and stuff. And actually, uh, like, um, guys you've probably never heard of who don't really play that high stakes or anything, they're playing, like, the 50K Super High Rollers and stuff, so they obviously pool their money together and get the best guy to play in these big tournaments and stuff. And they're, uh, having, they're having multiple bullets and stuff. And uh, when I played um, in London, in Nottingham, the WPT, uh, that package you were talking about, yeah. Before, um, I play, I, there was basically every table had a Spanish guy on it or two Spanish guys and in the high roller there was like maybe out of 50 entrants I think there was maybe like 15 were Spanish entrants uh-huh. so uh, it's, uh-huh. uh, Spanish guys really do pretty well and yeah they've had to I, I was aware of that I, I know that obviously London is kind of the centre of the UK grinder scene but yeah. uh, I think it's, it seems like uh, the Spanish scene has kind of migrated over here since, since uh, .es got separated from the main stars pool yeah, and it's actually competitive for me because obviously when I'm going for these pocket fives rankings, I always have like it's always me first or second, and like the guys I'm next to are always like Spanish, like Vice and Fish and stuff. So, ah, yeah, uh, I've seen Vice. It's even more of a reason to be competitive because you don't want a Spanish guy to be number one in England. You know, it's a little bit. Uh, <laughs> That's true. Yeah, you want to protect that, protect that national pride. Exactly. I give him some stick on Twitter and stuff about it. And uh, actually, last week in the main event, I played like a. Re- he was on my table on my right. And uh, he didn't know who I was. Well, I thought he did know who I was. Uh, not from, like, an ego point of view. I just assumed he would know who I was, I guess, because I'm right. from the UK. And it's, like, on these interviews for, like, Pocket Fives, on the Pocket Fives list every week, it always has, like, a picture of whoever's, like, in the top three and stuff. And I know he reads these interviews and stuff, so, because he's, yeah. like, he's, he's, like, posted them on Twitter. So I just assumed he knew who I was. So when he sat down, I said hello and stuff. And then, like, uh, two hours in or something, we played, like, a big pot. And then... Uh, and I was like, oh, yeah. I said some comment about, like, how we play online or something. Or, like, with our history online, I couldn't fold there. Or something like that. And he yeah. was like, oh, do we play online together or something? And I was like, oh, God, I should have said. And then we spoke. And he's, like, a really nice guy. He's, like, he's like the Spanish stars pro. So he does, like, the commentary for the EPT and stuff. Oh, okay. Well, and uh, I remember his name. It's, like, Vincent Delgado or something. And uh, oh, okay. he was... He was saying basically like all the all the Spanish guys live in London and they don't speak English well at all. Like they just because there's so many of them, they just don't need to speak sp- English because they're just together the whole time. It's like in yeah. Hungary, I'm with like Canadians and Americans, so I don't speak Hungarian. So it's like mm-hmm. it, you just you just assume because they live in London and because English is obviously like quite a universal language that the Spanish guys would speak English, but they just don't speak English at all. Uh, it's it's pretty funny, but yeah. They, they they have to live there for tax reasons. I think they have to give like sixty percent tax in Spain if they live there. So it's just a no go. So they have yeah. they have to live in, but th- but they can still play on Pokestars.es. So like on a Sunday they're like instead of playing basically on a Sunday they're playing like Pokestars.com, Pokestars.fr, and Pokestars.es. So wow, like they're playing stars except for yeah. dot, I, dot IP is like the holy grail. That's probably supposed to be the softest one. Yeah, I have some Italian friends like Rocco Palumbo, and he plays on. He lives in Slovakia or Slovenia, sorry, and he um he's still allowed to play on .it and .dot .com at the same time. So, oh, um, wow. and there's always like some scoop or some W coop or some some special series going on. So for these guys who like stars, basically like change their um their kind of promotions each month or so. So one month it'll be like stars then .com then .dot I thought yeah. and then, yeah so so for the Spanish guys they always have like a motivation to grind because there's always like some big tournament or some big series for them to yeah play literally like the whole year round it's no wonder they're making a bunch of money when they have all these promotions to take advantage of yeah and there's this guy Goju who like he won three tournaments in one day or something I don't know if you read about oh, he, that he, like he final table an EPT I saw somebody he final uh, table he final table two EPTs back to back and then on one uh, Sunday on one Sunday he won like 
the Sunday Storm, I think, which has like thirty thousand runners. The bigger fifty five, which has like the bigger fifty five, which has like I don't know, like ten thousand. Then he won like the Sunday kickoff, something like that. Like three very big tournaments. It was like I think it was like a billion to one or something. The chances of him doing it. So. That's crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. Crazy. It's, it's wow. So, uh, so a lot of the English guys have actually a lot of the English guys have actually moved away now because you're not uh-huh. allowed to play on .fr or. Lots of sites in England now after the legislation. So like Sam Grafton yeah. lives in Prague. Um, a guy's just mo- a guy's just moved to Slovenia. I live in Budapest. A lot of guys live in Budapest where I live. So like uh-huh. everyone, everyone now is kind of looking at options to move away because in England you're gonna just be left with stars and full tilt and there's like big tax and you have to pay um, rake on rebuys and you have to pay all this kind of stuff. So hyper turbo yeah. rakes really big. So it's not really like a it's not really a great place to live to be a tournament professional. London really like all England so. Yeah, especially with the cost of living being as high as it is these days. Exactly. You can just live in, like, Eastern Europe, uh, in, like, a big community of poker players. Live, like, get a really nice place for, like, 400 euros. Play on any site you want, have no tax problems. And uh, it's just, like, it's a lot better. It's, like, some life experience as well, like, living in different places. Um, Like, for me personally, I just couldn't imagine myself um, living in England, like, for, like, the foreseeable future that I'm a poker player. Yeah, I'm I'm getting kind of... uh, I don't know, I'm getting that travel itch again now. I, I've lived in a bunch of different places before I was in poker. So I've kind of, it, when I got in, when I started getting into poker, it was uh, it was very much over here in the UK. And, and I, I had no real inclination to travel because I'd kind of, I'd been doing that for a few years and I, I wanted to come back. But at, at this point now, I think it's, it's starting to get to the point where, um, particularly in the UK, I think people are starting to feel like the UK isn't as much of a poker-friendly country as it used to be. Um, yeah. So... It doesn't so one thing about one thing about the UK is you have you have like a really good live tournament every weekend. There's always mm-hmm. like a tournament where like three hundred to one thousand pounds, where first place yeah. is like twenty to thirty thousand. So the mm-hmm. the one the one envious thing about living in the UK is that if you want to play live poker, there's, there's always like an affordable tournament with a good first right. prize. There's like the GUKPT tour, or there's always like some kind of tour going on. It's like a very competitive market, and uh, Dust or Dawn's like obviously the best card room in probably Europe, if not the world. So um, it's uh it, it it there's some good reasons for living in England too. There's like there's some very good cash games like cash games in Budapest are like completely like there's guys like using lasers in their eyes to see cards and stuff. It sounds like Seriously? stupid. It sounds like stupid, but like my friends have been like scammed really big and stuff like that. Like there's guys who are like James Bond style. Like and it sounds like I'm making a bit like true, but in England you have like some very big cash games which are pretty legit in like good casinos and stuff. If you want to yeah. play in Budapest, you have to go to like the back of a butcher's shop with the butcher who's got his knife on the table or something like this, and who's <laughs> yeah. looking at your cards with lasers or something. I don't know. It's okay. like, it's like a scene out of Rounders when they're going into some shady backroom game, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But England's a lot bit more legit, and you can play like some big cash games. So I know the Spanish. There's actually been a lot of uh, discontent in these cash games because the Spanish guys come in, and because they don't speak English, they just come in with their headphones on, and they just play, and they generally play good, and they play tight. So the yeah. the, the fish and the recreational players in these games uh, really don't like it that these Spanish guys are coming in, but because all the Spanish guys live in London, and that's where the games are. Because um, there's guys who lived in Spain who were like live cash game pros there, so they moved to England and naturally they have these good games. They're going to play every night, but they're kind of disrupting the games because the fish aren't enjoying the presence and they don't like that there's a guy with headphones on not being interactive and stuff like this. So, uh-huh. um, so yeah, it's pretty interesting. I guess yeah. all this, all this stuff's kind of interesting. I guess I find it all like fascinating anyway. But yeah, yeah no, I, I think I think it's definitely like the the way that the poker landscape changes is really interesting because it's so it's so affected by factors completely outside of the game itself. It's affected yeah. by like cost of living in different countries. 
Um, you know, visa regulations, one thing which is quite big, because I know um, a bunch of the U.S. guys, um, obviously part of the reason why some of them would have had difficulty moving over to Europe is certain European countries, they won't let you get a visa to come here long term just for being a poker You know, you have to have um, you have to have some kind of job or somebody that can, you know, say we're employing you officially. Um, and so, so much of that stuff affects things. And, and then all, obviously, you know, um, considerations like, you know, the, the fact that there's so many guys out there who are not necessarily full-time uh, poker grinders these days. A lot of guys who have like business projects that they work on, on you know, yeah. on, on, on the side and things like that. And, and um, guys like that have to weigh up considerations of, you know, well, how important is poker going to be? Uh, in my, that's that's something I'm you know I'm in the process of doing that. So for me, it's 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 always fascinating to see the way that the poker environment kind of constantly it's it's almost the poker environment itself has to sort of adapt to the real world in the same way that a poker player at the table would adapt to their opponents. You know, it's it's the, it's like the real world is the poker economy's opponent in some way. You know, yeah, it's um, funny. Yeah, it's funny. The, especially Americans like living abroad. Like it's kind of fascinating because I was living with two American guys for the first six months of this year and. Uh-huh. If I if I make a hundred thousand and they make a hundred thousand, they have to give fifty thousand to the government, you know. And I don't, I don't yeah. have anything. It's like such a such a, I don't know. It's like such a negative. They could just choose not to give their um their passport at all. They could just choose not to give tax at all, and they get their green card taken off them. But obviously, mm-hmm. that's like a big commitment for the rest of your life, you know. Yeah. But whenever we whenever we go for dinners, like if we go for a dinner freeway, they'll like when we flip, we'll flip for the dinner. So whoever loses the flip um, pays for their dinner. And, but then there's an extra flip between the Americans because uh, the Americans will flip for the bill. So whoever wins the second flip, they get to like take the expenses and write it off their winnings at the end of the year. So like huh. usually, usually with English guys, we'd have like one flip. There's always like a flip for everybody. Then the Americans will flip again for like the the meal the meal ticket kind of thing. Wow, and, uh, <laughs> it's, it's just fascinating to see from us because we have. We don't have any of those problems. It's like, and the Americans obviously think we're like super lucky because of it all as well. But to us, it's just natural kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess it, it, it's very easy to not appreciate that. But I mean, I, like, I if I was in the position of having to keep track of all my expenses and stuff for tax purposes, then I, I'm sure I would be a lot better with money than I am. But um, yeah, but that's I, true. I, I'd imagine a lot of the UK guys are uh, are probably um, a lot more relaxed about a lot of the you know the financial side of things because. Yeah. Over here, it's like like you say, and anything that comes through poker is uh, is not going to be touched, really. So mm-hmm. you, uh, you, know, you can get a lot further on poker income if you're a UK citizen than you can if you're a US citizen. But that's like it's a funny thing because if you like you say a UK and a US citizen both moving to Hungary, ostensibly they both benefit from the the lowered cost of living, but the UK player benefits double because not only do they have a lower cost of living than they do in the UK, but they also don't have to pay tax. At all, yeah, so 100k in in Hungary would get you maybe even like four times as far as it would in the UK because of the low yeah. and and the lack of tax compared to the US. So yeah, there's there's, there's also like opportunities. Like I I just opened a bar in Budapest like um, three wow. weeks ago with some friends. So like there's also like. In, in in these Eastern European countries, there's there's often like property and stuff which you can like in England like if it, you, it's still affordable, but it's, it's a lot more expensive to buy like a property and rent it out and stuff. But in Budapest or like uh, Prague or some of these cities, it's it's pretty cheap to get like a nice apartment. And because um, we know lots of poker players and these are places where poker players are coming to live, it's pretty easy to rent them out and stuff like this. Um, so there's a lot more opportunities in these countries as well than in like the UK or maybe in America. Well, I, I guess you can always get good good deals in places, I guess. But in, in Budapest and Prague and places like this, I know it's like a lot more 
common mm-hmm. to find like people offering new stuff. And also like there's a lot more like just because there's poker players here doesn't mean that we're the only community. Like there's a big startup community in Budapest as well. So there's maybe like fifty to sixty like expats who are like twenty to twenty five who are like super clever and they have like online businesses and stuff like this. And uh when we go out for dinner, we go out for dinner with these guys as well and kind of if I was in the UK, obviously you meet people as well, but generally you just stick with your friends from school and maybe like you meet a friend of a friend but because the communities together in Budapest, it's like poker players and startup guys. They're kind of good people to get, connect with, and maybe you can do some businesses together. Like I do, mm-hmm. I've, I've opened this bar with like three guys: a, an, an Iranian guy, a Spanish guy, and an Argentinian guy. So it's like um, you learn, you're meeting different people, and it just helps out loads of different stuff. I think too. That's uh, that's really cool. Are you finding it a challenge at all to split your time between poker and? running a new business well i mean i don't i'm like very hands-off um i i I like have like creative freedom i like to call it with the bar like i I have the ideas i come to the guys with like ideas so i'll just be grinding and then that's it'll just something will come into my head i write it down on my phone and then we'll have a meeting like once or twice a week and then Mm -hmm. we'll go over the stuff and then there's a guy who's like the operations manager or whatever who will try to put like my ideas into like action kind of thing um so yeah it's fun though it's definitely fun and uh it's it's nice. It's it's just different. It's something. It's something like it's very easy for, for money to come and go. It's just nice to just have something there that um, I don't need to put more money into, and it's just going to be there in one year or two years as well, kind of thing. Yeah. Because, and, uh, there's no. Well, I guess there's there's some variance in business, but it's not like uh, it's not like you can suddenly lose the bar on a coin flip, right? So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Yeah. Ho- hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in one drunken stupor. Yeah. Yeah. Don't don't, don't give me ideas. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually something that I I tell other poker players a lot because I obviously have a business on the side. And I always tell poker players, like, there's so many opportunities in and around poker or through people you meet in poker to to get involved in businesses or startups. Mm -hmm. And it's such an exciting place to put your money. And I think poker players are naturally good at, like, a lot of things involved with running and starting a business. Um, but a lot of people just don't think about it as an option. They just think, well, I'll, I'll grind poker, hopefully make money, and maybe someday I'll have to get a job and work for somebody. Yeah. But they don't realize they could put that money to work for them. Well, the thing is in, thing is in Eastern Europe, especially, like, I'm not being racist or anything, but the, uh, the, ser- the service is just, like, incredibly bad. So, like, if you, if you go to, like, a real estate place, the people who are handling it are, like, terrible. If you go to a restaurant, basically the people are terrible. If you go to a bar, the bar, the bar staff aren't very good. And this is, like, common all the way throughout. Like, if I went to Prague last week, it was the same. And mm-hmm. just other places as well. So if you have an idea, then usually you can be, like, um, I know it's the name of my blog, but you can be like the best in the business if you want to be because like the competition is really poor and they're, they're just like happy to get by kind of thing. They're not striving to make like loads and loads of money or anything. They're just like, they have this like profitable business and guys come in and drink in their bar and that's fine. Um, but when we take over, like the, we're like really ambitious and we want to do this and do that and we have all these ideas kind of thing. So we feel like if we can, if we can get into other areas, then um, as long as legally everything's okay, then we'll be able to like excel pretty easily because like the level of incompetence is like pretty high, higher than you would imagine. So that's good news, I guess. So I suppose you know, I, I guess we uh, we should wrap this up in a few minutes, I think, because I think Derek has to uh, Derek has to vacate. But um, sure. I I guess in in terms of what's what's ahead for you in 2015, is there anything in particular you you're looking forward to? Anything you've got on the horizon? Um, I'm going to go back to cash games a little bit. I'm going to play like two to three sessions a week of tournaments, I guess, like Sundays and then maybe one other day. Um, I'm starting like a big um, stable with my friend European and uh, we're going to be spending more time on that than playing, I guess. Um, so I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to that. It's kind of like another business thing, I guess. 
and uh, I'm going to play some more live poker. So I'm going to play like all of the EPTs and the high rollers. And uh, I think I'm going I'm to try to play like the super high roller next year in Prague if the field's similar to this year. So mm-hmm. I'm kind of looking forward to that. It's kind of it's in December, so I know that if I have a really good year, I can kind of play this big big tournament at the end of the year. So. I can always kind of just look forward to just, I know that in my head, if I play well, then I have this like good tournament to look forward to at the end of the year. So, um, yeah. so yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to, I'm I'm pretty positive about next year. Um, my feet are on the ground. I'm not like expecting to make like X dollars. I don't have like monetary targets. I'm just expecting mm-hmm. to continue trying, trying to play hard and work hard. And, uh, yeah. That's awesome. That's Sounds awesome. like a good plan. Yeah. So you're, so you're staying in Hungary for the, for the foreseeable future. Um, most likely, yeah. I'm not 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 exactly sure. I've been looking at Malta and some other places, um, but yeah, I'm not sure. I'm going to be traveling around the circuit, I guess, a little bit. But um, there's an EPT in Malta this year. I think uh, it's in March or something. So yeah, if I, I go that. if I go there and fall in love with the place or something, then maybe I go back or something. I don't you know. Get travel around for Malta, yeah. Yeah, my cool. girlfriend lived there for four years, so she she likes oh. it as well. So hey, yeah, that sounds cool. Yeah, well, I might I might be doing a fair amount of traveling myself this year. I don't know how much I'll be playing with the traveling, but. Yeah, I may bump into you at one stop or another. So I'll yeah, that'd be nice. I'll come yeah, say sure. hi after in Budapest. <laughs> sure, sure, that'd, that'd be good. Yeah, 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 yeah. welcome, yeah. Yeah, I need to make a trip over there because I'm a connoisseur of fine bars. Oh, really? So. Okay. <laughs> I will make my way over for sure. Okay, cool. Well, maybe you'll get there and find out that it's uh, a, li- a little bit more, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit more a different kind of bar. What, what kind of What kind of bar is it? You want to sell it right here? Well, it's kind of the bar. The next door is next door to Albar's is the most popular bar in Budapest, like where everybody goes. Everyone okay. comes to Albar first and gets really drunk and then goes to the other bar, <laughs> which is more expensive. So we're kind of we're kind of looking at different concepts and themes for how we want the bar to like evolve into next year. It's uh-huh. called two, it's called Tuborg right now, which is the name of a beer because of a contract we have. But oh, yeah. um, the other guys want to call it Patrick's Bar. But it sounds like it, if it's called Patrick's Bar, everyone's going to think that I called it that, and it's going to be like a really egotistical name. But uh, they, it's a big. It Irish... sounds like it's some kind of weird Irish theme, but not quite because it, well, it sounds like it's trying to call itself something to do with Irishness. Yeah, well, that's part of the reason because there's a really big Irish community in Budapest, and the main oh. bar, the main bar just got closed down. I'm not sure exactly why. So like, mm-hmm. there's a big, there's a big audience of these uh, Irish beer drinkers. So uh, ah, yeah, like could be a good shout. Yeah, we had half an eye on, on those guys, I guess. Um, but yeah, you're both welcome to come and drink some me, I guess. That's what I'll awesome. do. Sounds yeah, good. Sounds All good. Right, well, I guess. Cool. So yeah, for people out there listening, um, if they want to follow uh, Patrick on Twitter, you can find him uh, at 4 bet to induce correct? So that's a f- the number four and the number yeah, two. Yeah, cringy. I, yeah. I, I, I've, I've emailed Twitter a few times asking if I can just change it to my name, but they they don't seem to oblige to it. I think you... At least, I mean, I've done it before. Like, I think you can just change it in your account settings, can't you? Oh, really? Oh, well, well I don't you think... can change the display name, but not the actual... You the, can't change the, 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 hash, the hashtag, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah, the, the at name won't change, but you can change the display name. Yeah. Thing, kind of unfortunate, yeah. but yeah. Unfortunately, Twitter is not... If, you know... Jay Z wrote and asked to change his name. I know, I know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> They're not hooking us up. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's there's your goal, Patrick. Right. You, you make enough money, eventually Twitter will bend to your will. <laughs> and change your name. That's a that's a good goal to aspire to. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, so you can find him uh, at Forbet to Induce, I'll, and I'll put a link to that on on the podcast page as well. But uh, you mentioned a blog as well. Where can people find that? Yeah, I have two blogs which I write the same thing in every day. So like, I'll write in one blog and I'll copy it to another site as well. So it's a uh, one on two plus two, and it, uh, it's called um, 
Hungary for success, and it's spelled like Hungary, as in like uh, <laughs> the country is me trying is me trying to be clever, I guess. And then uh, there's one on Blonde Poker, which is like a UK forum called uh, Best in the Business, which has been going since uh, I think it's like seven years old now, and it starts with me as like a five dollar sit and go play telling. I think the first post I say like one day in the world I'm going to be the best. Uh, I'm going to be ranked number one or something like this. And then um, six years later, it finally happens. So it's a uh, it's it's a long it's a long read, but I'm I'm pretty active. I treat it like a diary. I, I write in it every day, even if I just say what I did in the day. I just write and keep it regularly updated. So uh, very cool. Yeah. So yeah. So people, if you want to uh, find out more about Patrick or just follow along with his exploits, um, check him out on Twitter or at either of those two spots. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us, Patrick. Really appreciate it's it. Nice and fun. It's been good. Yeah, thanks, man. Cool. And uh, big thanks to everybody for listening to all year long. Um, this is our first year in existence, and you guys have been amazing. And uh, we'll be back with many, many more episodes in 2015 here on Midstakes Living. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, everybody.